to be honest, I would get frustrated at that and set it aside. But I had some friends who could do it. I had one friend that decided to cheat the cube. He decided he would try to pull the stickers off and each one of them off, keep the stick on, and then once, the cube, once all of them were off, put them in uniform color on each side. But if you've ever worked the Rubik's Cube, you understand what it is. It's uh, um, six sides to it, uh, nine squares on each side. And the goal is for the six sides to be uniform in color totally. But I was thinking this week, how many possible combinations of colors could a Rubik's Cube have? And it was far more than I thought. For instance, you have six sides. You have nine colors on each side. How many different ones? In other words, one could be just one off from another. How many could there be? So as you do the permutations of the rows and the columns and the sides, mathematically it's determined that there are 43.25 quintillion possibilities of a Rubik's Cube, each one unique. In fact, someone, and I don't know where people get this, but they spent enough time to say that um, among the six sides with nine distinct squares, every distinct possibility, each cube with a distinct possibility, set side by side would cover the Earth's surface 275 times. That's how many variations you could make of that puzzle. But for those of you who have worked the puzzle uniformly, all six colors in uniform, side by side, you have actually taken a cube that's about three inches and done something that you could wrap around the world 275 times and only do once. We're in the midst of a series of messages titled, What a Savior. And as we look at all of the people who have ever lived on the face of the earth, even though those numbers of the Rubik's Cube would, would amaze us that someone could work it in such a way that only one in over 43.25 quintillion times could happen and it could be just right, the Lord Jesus Christ, our creator, became flesh and he's unique. There's none like him. For the past two weeks, we've noticed the uniqueness of Jesus. Only he is our substitute. It is only he that could pay the price of our sin. Only he was raised triumphant over sin and death. We know that he's the first fruits that others will follow, but he is the one who is the first fruits. He is the only one that can defeat Satan and death, we saw a couple of weeks ago. He's the only one whose death could appease the Father. We talked about the righteous wrath of God, yet the mercy of God and how they had to be reconciled. And only through Jesus, only this one was that made possible. He alone provides redemption. Last week, we looked at John the Baptist. And as great as John the Baptist was, the song and the testimony, the Benedictus of Zechariah, John's father, was not about John, but it was about Jesus. Today we're in Revelation 5. And we're going to see that among the thousands of thousands, a heavenly throng of people, there was only one Jesus found worthy. Look with me at Revelation chapter 5. John writes, Then I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. 
I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lord. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, notice the uniqueness of Christ, worthy is the lamb not lambs the lamb the single one who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing i heard every creature in heaven on earth under the earth and on the sea and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped let's pray Lord, as we look to your word today, there's no one like Jesus. Lord, in these next couple of weeks, building up to our celebration of the birth of Christ, I pray every one of us individually would seek to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. Not us, not any human, but only the one who is worthy of our allegiance, of our worship, Father, we see here in Revelation 5 a heavenly throng of people who understood there's none like Jesus. Lord, open our eyes to see him more clearly today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This text that we just read is part of the revelation given to John while he was on the island of Patmos. Now, this is not the book of Revelations, and many times we'll hear people mistakenly say, turn to Revelations chapter 5, but it's Revelation. In other words, this entire book is a uniform revelation of how God is working throughout history and how God is working to bring not only this world as we know it to an end, but Jesus' second coming and the new world and thus the eternal state and so everything that God shows John here while it may be with the symbolism very difficult for us to understand and confessedly it often is it is a uniform revelation of the Lord 
Jesus Christ. And, and while there are many complications possibly to understanding this book, one way to simplify the understanding of the book of Revelation is to understand that throughout the book, there are really two venues. And so as you read a particular chapter, you have to say, what is the venue? There's the heavenly venue and there's the earthly venue. The things that are described in the book of Revelation, as you read, one part may be focusing on the heavenly and the heavenly scene, the other, the earthly scene. As you look at the earth, on earth, this book depicts days moving toward the end of history as we know it. They depict days of chaos, of disorder, of natural, man-made devastation. That's on earth. But in heaven, things are different. There's worship, there's order, uh, there's knowledge and the like. Now some of the heavenly and the earthly events are happening simultaneously. And you say, well, how can that be? Well, if you've ever watched a mystery on television, you may know where I'm going. You have one scene, and they're showing somebody in a room at home, and another scene, uh, maybe somebody's in the hospital. And while we're looking at those two scenes consecutively, many times in the story, they will present them happening at the same time. But actually, not only are they happening at the same time, but as we look at that particular mystery, wherever the venue you whatever is going on it is all working toward a uniform end and so as we look at the book of revelation whether we're looking at earthly scenes or heavenly scenes we need to understand that where it is all leading is to the end that revelation 5 is attesting to today and that is the exalted lord jesus christ in revelation 5 we see a heavenly scene now, John is not in heaven here. The scripture says that he has given a vision of heaven. He's given a proleptic vision. That is, he is able to see things that are happening in his future and, as we will see, even in our future. And so it's apocalyptic material, which is a distinct type of material that deals with things as they move toward the end of time as we know it. Yet this book of Revelation that's unique in, in its symbolism is, all, is actually in concert with the rest of Scripture because the goal of the book of Revelation is to help us to see who Jesus Christ is and there's none like he. He is the greatest. He is the only. In fact, we might not even use greatest because when we do that, we try to compare him with someone else. He's unique. He is matchless. And the theme we see is found throughout Scripture. We saw it in Genesis 3.15 where the serpent was given judgment and he is the one, Jesus, who deals the death blow. We see it throughout the prophecies of the Old Testament and Isaiah. We've looked in the last couple of weeks in Sunday school and how Isaiah describes Jesus Christ as the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the one upon the, uh, whom human government would rest. We see it in the New Testament epistles and in the general epistles. We noted a couple of weeks ago in the book of Hebrews how it attests to the fact that Jesus is superior over Moses, over the law, over the angels, over all of the priests. Jesus is matchless. And then here in Revelation, John is given a vision. And what does this vision tell us? Even though symbolism is used, it's the same thread throughout scripture. There's none 
like Jesus Christ. What a Savior he is. Most people, interpreters, believe that Revelation 5 is a continuation of Revelation 4. I, I tend to believe that way. In fact, I, I sort of follow the book of Revelation in a chronological way. I like how uh, the deceased pastor, Adrian Rogers, used to state that when he preached uh, about symbolic language and the apocalyptic language, he says it's symbolism, but you take it literal. In other words, what he means is this, figure out what the symbol means and then literally believe what it means. And so as we look at it, we see that there are heavenly groups here in heaven in chapter 5. John sees the four beasts, which are sort of similar to the cherubim described in the book of Ezekiel. There are the 24 elders, which I believe to represent uh, the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints, the number of 12 being the patriarchs, the, the children of Israel, or the, the, uh, uh, and then uh, the 12 apostles and the New Testament believers. There are also many angels that are described here, redeemed believers. There's God himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And so what we see here is a congregation that is far greater than we can imagine. I think it says thousands uh, times thousands plus thousands even more. But in the midst of this book, there's a problem. Now it sounds strange that there's a problem in heaven. But it's not a problem to God. And as John was observing, we see in chapter 5 that he sees a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? In other words, this angel is making a search through all of this throng of people and trying to say, who is worthy? Who is the one who is worthy? And as I began to think about it, it may have been just a rhetorical question. Teachers, professors ask that in the classroom. They'll ask a question knowing what the answer is, but to sort of solicit thought. That may have been the intent of the mighty angel here. Or it may have been that the mighty angel himself, as mighty as he was, was not omniscient and so could not know everything. We don't know the answer. All I know is this, Jesus is the answer. And as I began to think about this more and more, even this problem that was in the heavenly realm, problems are temporal. Jesus is eternal. And so a search was made throughout heaven, and no created being was found that would be worthy to take the scroll from the Father. And this led John to cry. Now, there are no tears in heaven, but John isn't in heaven here. John has a vision of heaven. It doesn't mention the mighty angel crying. Uh, and, and, and so as we look at it here, uh, he was bothered. But then we see the answer. In the midst of all of this appears Jesus. You know, we celebrate Jesus' birth today. And often we don't time, take time to reflect on, on his greatness. He's far beyond what our minds can imagine. Whatever you're going through now, he is the answer to what you're going through. Even as the book of Hebrews does, Revelation exalts Jesus to his rightful place. 
And so as we go through seasons of our life, whether they're high seasons or whether they're low seasons, we need to ask ourselves, are we lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ in our situation right now? Well, today I want to note just a few things about Jesus, but before we look at the person of Jesus and what he's going to do in our future, I want to look at this scroll that's described in verse 1. It's in the hands of God the Father. God the Father is seated on the throne. And there's writing, it tells us, in, on both sides. And there are seven seals. Now, I believe this is a literal scroll, not a book. You understand what I'm saying? A scroll is rolled, and you have uh, this picture in your mind, and there's seven seals that are closing up that particular um, scroll. They're writing on both sides, which tells us that part can be seen because the outside, but there's much still that cannot be seen that must be opened or revealed. Apocalypsis, the, the apocalyptic material that must be opened for us to understand. That's sealed with seven seals. Seven is symbolic of completeness. And so seven is the number of God. God is whole. Six is the number of man. But to to, to use seven seals, it speaks to a process. In other words, when you open your Christmas gifts and you've got tape on one end and you have tape on the other end, well, you may actually just rip it. I do that sometimes. But if you try to protect the paper, what do you do? And you would want to protect the scroll. You slowly peel one part, and then you peel the other part. And so we see each of these seven seals are removed consecutively. It speaks to a process and not an instantaneous thing. Each of these seals, thirdly, in chapter 6 through 8, speaks to events, to terrible events. You see them in at chapter 6 through 8, the terrible events that must take place before the end of this age as we know it comes to pass. And the fact that only Jesus is found to open each and loosen each seal attests to his authority over time and over events. The same thing that is true for this world is true in your world. He is authoritative over the time of your life. He's authoritative over the events in your life. Now, he allows some things to happen to you and to me that are not good, that are very difficult. He also allows the blessings to come, which many times we take for granted. He mandates some things. There are consequences to what we do, consequences to what other people do, and then there are some things that there's no explanation about, yet he is Lord over all of them. So as we look at him being worthy, it attests to the fact that he controls all of history. So when you put your head on the pillow tonight, no matter what you're going through in your life, you can know you don't have to figure it all out. He is the one who's in control. And so we see these seals described in chapter 6, 7, and 8, these events, these times in history that are going to happen consecutively. But then we see the scroll itself. And many people believe, and I do also, that the scroll represents the title deed to the earth. He is Lord over the earth. 
So we see the seven seals and the six happen. And then within the seventh, there's a pause. And we see that there are seven trumpet judgments that are inside of the seventh seal. And then within the seven trumpet judgments, the six, the first six happen. And then within the seventh is concealed seven bold judgments. And all of these things are happening. The sixth and then the seventh opening up a new seventh. The sixth happens a seventh and that happening and then the following seven happen yet all of these things are happening and what are they doing Jesus has control of, of all of them and they're leading to the point of Jesus second coming and when Jesus comes again everyone will know it the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. The title deed of the earth is the Lord's. And so this vision in Revelation 5 speaks to the truth that Jesus and Jesus alone controls the culmination of history. Now as we look at everything happening crazy around us, we say, what in the world is going on? But I want you to know today that God is working it all and Jesus is authoritative over it. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that you don't have such control? I'm glad I don't. I have trouble coaching my child's little league team because I either want to be too hard or I want to be too easy. I'm thinking in my own realm, my own child, much less what's going on around me. And, and we as fallen human beings, if we were to be in control of all of it, we would figure we had all the answers and we would try to orchestrate it, but not with the wisdom of God. We know that God willingly gave authority to this earth to man. Didn't he tell Adam, he said, I give you dominion over the creation. We know that Satan deceived Adam and, and he tried to usurp that authority. And we know that Satan is called the little g God of this age. And we see evidence of his working all around in darkness and uh, the, the terrible things that are happening. And it can be discouraging. But that's not the final story because Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, this earth will rightfully be reestablished visibly under his rule. It's his earth. I like how Lehman Strauss in its commentary expresses the truth that God is going to come back and visibly demonstrate what is physically his. And Lehman Strauss uses the illustration of Jeremiah before Judah went into captivity. You remember Judah went into captivity in Babylon and Jeremiah was saying it's going to be 70 years. And he basically was saying, though, you're going to come back. In fact, there were some people encouraged even to buy houses and you think, why would you buy a house if it's going to be taken? No, you're going to come back in the land. There's going to be a time, there's going to be a temporal period where it will appear that Judah will not have the land, but there is coming a time when God will act and Judah will have back its land. In the same way, this earth that is the Lord's, when he comes back, it will be evident to all. We're going to see in a few minutes what he'll actually do. But very quickly, I want you to see how he has described who he is. He is described first as God who became flesh. 
One of the uncompromising doctrines of the Bible is the virgin birth. Jesus was born not of the seed of man. He was born of the Holy Spirit. He is the only one. Going back to that one setup of the Rubik's Cube among 43 and a quarter quintillion, Jesus, even more than that, is the only one who is fully God and fully man. And we saw last week in Sunday school the prophecy in Isaiah that a virgin would be born with child. That is not just something to pass by, but it attests to the unique nature of our uncreated Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here in Revelation 5, we see reaffirmed Jesus' divine nature along with his human nature. Look at verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me after John had wept, Do not weep, look. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. There are two descriptions there. The lion of the tribe of Judah, that speaks to his humanity. He came from a tribe. He came specifically from a tribe. There was a prophecy the Messiah would come from in Genesis 49. But then we see also the root of David. This speaks to a source elsewhere in, uh, in Isaiah 11, 1, he's spoken of as the branch of David. And so his genealogy, humanly speaking, goes back to David. But he is also before David. As God, he is before and above David. So he is the root of David, not just the branch, but as God, he is the root of David. He alone is fully God and fully man. But not only that, he's the victor. All of us hate losing, don't we? We hate losing a bid. We hate uh, losing a relationship. We hate losing in our personal life. We hate losing on the field, in the court of competition. We hate losing out in the workplace. But Jesus has never faced defeat. Even in his death, he was not defeated. How is he described here? Look at verse 5. He is described as the one who has conquered through his resurrection. I like how verse 6 depicts, I saw one like a slaughtered lamb. We can't mistake who that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice how he's described. He's standing in the midst. He's not deceased. He's not lying. He is standing, having overcome. He's the one worthy of all praise. He's all powerful. Look at verse 6. He had seven horns. Again, seven, the number of perfection. It speaks to his power. He's fully powerful. He had seven eyes. Again, that number of completeness. It speaks to the fact that he lacks nothing, that he's omniscient, that he sees everything. And along with that, we see a beautiful picture of the Trinity, the seven spirits. So we see God the Father having the scroll, God the Son taking the scroll, and a depiction within the three-in-one of the Holy Spirit. So as we look at all of this, his knowledge, his power, his sacrificial act, his victory, all of this leads to the heavenly response, and it's this, praise. And if these individuals, heavenly beings, understood how important it is to praise the Lord Jesus Christ, how much more so should we be praising him in our lives? Should we be acknowledging him to other people? Should we be speaking about his greatness? And when Christmas comes along, that we direct people to the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder, are you acknowledging him in your life? So we see who he is, 
But finally, what does he do? When will all of this take place? At the second coming. In, in verse 8, it begins to focus on the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a new song, a fresh song, a song of redemption, a song of, of, of uh, the heavenly throng beginning to see the puzzle coming together and the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's going to do. And then notice verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say. Notice the groups. Everything from in heaven to on earth to on the sea to under the earth. They're all acknowledging the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, forever and ever. When I read this, I thought of Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Revelation 5 should get us excited. He's worthy. During this holy season, we celebrate Jesus' first coming, and in his first coming, he came quietly, but he's coming again. And Revelation 1, 7 says that when he comes again, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, even those who live their lives rejecting him will one day acknowledge who he is. I wonder today, are you ready for that return? Have you trusted him? On that day, the heavenly throng will be joined by all of creation, acknowledging what? What a Savior. Jesus Christ, the matchless one, among the heavenly host, the greatest of the great, there's none worthy but he. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word today, we're amazed at what's described in Revelation 5. Lord, in the midst of all of the symbolism, and we admit to you there's a lot of it in this chapter, the focus of this chapter is the one whom has no match, the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is God became flesh. He alone is raised from the dead, giving eternal life to those who would believe. He alone is worthy. Lord, if there be any here today, who not trusted him, I pray today would be the day of salvation. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing in just a moment.